Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. More public input is being sought on local encampments. The implosion of the Titan sub bringing a fresh take on risk assessment. A North Hamilton neighborhood is getting cleaned up. No more pride in the NHL. Speedy B talks tie cats ahead of Hamilton's home opener. And selling your vehicle? Be mindful of the color. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton's homeless encampment issue may be the number one. If, if not, it's, it's right there at number two, I am sure, of top items on city council's to-do list, on really everyone's uh, attention list in terms of solving this critical issue. For the most part, people had a really uh, clear understanding that a lot of the problems that we're facing with homelessness is really addictions and mental health supports. That is the voice of Councillor John Paul Danko. We had him on the air earlier this week following a, a pretty well-attended public meeting on the mountain on Monday night in which uh, residents had concerns and a lot of questions and even some ideas on what to do with encampments. Joining us now to offer uh, her thoughts is Narendra Nan, City Councillor for Ward 3 in the City of Hamilton, and joins us now on GMH. Councillor Nan, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Where, where do we go with this? There's so many different things we have to do. Where do we start and, and where are we right now? Yeah. Number one is that enforcing encampments isn't a solution. So we need to be working on solutions with all three levels of government. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, city taxpayers and the city on its own cannot solve the housing crisis, the mental health crisis, and the addiction crisis that is alive and well, not only um, in private homes, but also uh, out on the street. So the city of Hamilton is looking at a human rights and health-focused strategy to help manage what is happening in terms of folks living encamped around our community. And there's two areas that we're looking for input from our residents from. One is what are the kind of supports that are needed for our unhoused residents to make sure that we are fulfilling that mandate of a health-focused and human rights approach. And two, if we are going to uh, enable and understand that we can't build enough housing, there's not enough space in our shelter beds, there's not enough support in in situ for folks to uh, absolutely eliminate encamped living, um, then what is what are the agreements for the shared use of our public spaces, whether it's a sanctioned site where the municipality will be able to mobilize services that show up right onto location to support folks or non-sanctioned sites where um, those residents who are living on house choose to set up encampments. Right now, the city is asking residents to chime in on their thoughts on what should be done with the proposed encampment protocol. What do you hope it becomes? I actually, I have a lot of faith that we can get through this uh, together and get to a shared set of understandings that when encampments are setting up in public spaces, what those mutual rules of engagement look like, right? So that those residents who want to be able to enjoy a municipal park can do so with comfort and that those folks who have no other choice of where to go to live uh, are also engaging in a set of rules that are mutually agreed upon and doing so in a way that respects the space. And fundamentally, it's about being good neighbors in both directions. Uh, we have a great opportunity coming up on Tuesday. So you you mentioned uh, earlier this week and got some feedback on the meeting that happened on the mountain on Monday night. So next Tuesday, we have a meeting happening at the C- Convention Center. So June 27th from 7 
p.m. till 9 p.m. And uh, we heard some great feedback from that last meeting. So we're making sure that child minding is available, that folks know that there's some HSR uh, fair support and as well as some light refreshments just to encourage people to be able to participate. We really want this to be an inclusive and safe environment for people to provide their input. Anyone who can't attend any of these public meetings, and we understand that sometimes, you know, people work at night or they, you know, they can't uh, make it to these events. You can also go online to engage.hamilton.ca forward slash encampments. What, what has to be the first step in this process? Step one is, not moving people. Um, when you displace people from the from the location, it dislocates them from the supports and services that they're relying on. You know, it's not true that every single person that's living in camp is dealing with a mental health crisis or dealing with an addictions crisis. We have families who are living in tents in Hamilton. We've got people who are getting up every morning, taking their kids to school and going to work and then coming home to live in a tent. We've got mothers who are, you know, unfortunately not able to keep their kids in a tent because they recognize that that's not a safe environment for them. They have their kids taken care of through um, mutual friends, but then are also doing the same thing, getting up every morning, meeting their kids where they where they can be and uh, getting to work um, and coming back to a tent to live. So at the end of the day, it's really critical for the incredible support teams that we do have out there, whether they're city funded or community-based organizations like HamSmart, uh, the social medical uh, team that makes themselves available for providing nursing and psychiatric support to different encampments, whether it's the various harm reduction services um, that are that are mobile in the community, whether it's all the folks who are preparing food and making sure that there's nutrition and hydration happening for the folks that are living vulnerably inside tents. Um, that work is so much harder to do when you don't know where folks are going to be the next day. And honestly, the solution to all of this is resting in relationships of trust. And that takes time to build and nurture over folks who've been dealing with some incredible crises and incredible challenging circumstances in their lives. And I think fundamentally, at the end of the day, we need to approach this with compassion, with love and integrity. Councillor Nan, I got about 20 seconds. Are you in favor of sanctioned encampment sites or should these people be allowed to be where they want to be? I believe we should have sanctioned sites because then we can get to those rules of engagement that are shared. Um, we can make sure that the supports are reaching people where they can be and where they are. And most importantly, so that we can enable people to be put on the right path towards housing solutions. Councillor Nan, appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, discussing this with us this morning. Good morning. Take care. That is Narendra Dan, City Councilor, Ward 3 in the City of Hamilton. You can make your voice heard online, engaged on hamilton.ca forward slash encampments. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. In consultation with experts from within the Unified Command, the debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. Upon this determination, we immediately notified the families. A sad yet, uh, I think we all thought, inevitable ending for this uh, Titan sub, this submersible vessel near the Titanic. Everyone's attention certainly focused on this missing, now found and now imploded sub vessel that was um, going towards the Titanic wreckage. All five people on board uh, have died in this mishap. And 
it obviously has generated a lot of attention around the world, but it has also generated a, a bigger conversation about private risk and, and private risk associated with, let's just call it the, the adventure tourism industry. And I came across a great article online at theconversation.com, and it was written by our next guest, Dr. Ali Asghari from York University, who's a professor in disaster and emergency management, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Asghari, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you, Rick. Uh, I'm very good. Your, uh, your article, the title is Titanic Submersible Catastrophic Implosion. Questions remain about the costs and ethics of rescuing tourist expeditions. What questions do you have? Uh, there are a number of questions, but of course, I'm focusing mostly on uh, the questions that are related to, to disaster and emergency management, in particular, uh, from one side, that is the risk management process, and on the other side, the impacts uh, of this assessment and these activities are operations on uh, public uh, search and rescue operations in general. Um, that's the essence of my, my uh, focus, basically, in this article. With that risk management or risk assessment, when things go wrong, as it did in this case, there is there's there's time, there's money, there's resources, there's lots of attention paid to trying to find these individuals or this vessel in this particular case. There's a lot of money being spent on this. What are your thoughts on that? Exactly. Thank you so much for the, for the question. I'm. Uh... Starting, let's let's just start with the, the risk assessment part. Usually in private sector, uh, especially on new operations where it's not uh, experimented a lot, uh, risk assessment is based on really uh, small number of evidences or basically sometimes no data. And these kind of risk assessments put uh, those who are using the or are involved in the operation at risk uh, that is not well assessed. And the point is, usually at the private sector, not always, but in, in, in these particular cases, what they look at is at the probability of the incident like this happening, and on the other hand, the consequences. When they look at it from private sector only uh, criteria, in terms of consequences, we know that they, at most, they look at what would happen in terms of losses, human losses, and or uh, or property losses. And in this case, this may have been done, and this may have been taken as you know maximum amount that is, for example, loss of uh, the crew and loss of the vessels, etc. But what is not usually uh, considered in these kind of calculations is the cost associated with or additional cost associated with what happened uh, or what costs are associated when something goes wrong in, in essence. This is one hand. And on the other hand, the probability is, is really unknown because these are not uh, kind, of ex kind of activities that are happening very regularly. Uh, and these are really rare cases. So you don't have basically data to support your risk assessment anyway. So it is really a, a, a very uh, unfinished, I would say, uh, risk assessment. Uh, in general. Uh, I stop here because the, the other part of my argument is, is about what happens then after we, or if we want to consider these kind of extra societal uh, 
consequences into our calculations of risk. And that's where I wanted to go. We're, we're speaking with Dr. Ali Asghari. He's a professor in, in disaster and emergency management at York University and has written a really interesting article about risk assessment. And when you look at, you know, this particular case, this is an underwater operation, which makes search and or recovery uh, a, a very unique challenge uh, because it's not like we can see it. We have to go in a, a vast amount of water. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of energy. Should there be some kind of waiver, some kind of new rule associated with this kind of risk. Exactly. That is why we have, for example, uh, building codes in our uh, our cities. We have building uh, or structural codes in in other operations uh, when, when when there are risks involved. We know, for example, uh, cities when they when they uh, issue permit for high rise buildings of certain floors. They have to provide fire uh, service to them uh, once they provide the, the permit. Uh, here is the same. If we we are not sure we can handle this kind of risk, uh, it is basically a no go. Uh, and in 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 situations like this, this is a risk that we are really neither the the the, the company uh, who is behind the, the the service nor the public who is going to provide uh, such service in case something goes wrong are really able to handle uh, or take care of this risk uh, the way that they they want to although uh, the intention is to provide you know uh, service intention is to save lives but it is really complicated it is beyond you know the capacity of of many of those who are in in, in working in this environment or, or responding to this kind of calls um to, to say the least so and by the time you you bring in capacities that may be able to to support or help it is already too late we understand you know this is this is real emergency it is not, you know, something that you have time to think about or or plan for, uh, etc. It's a really interesting article. You can give it a read yourself. Theconversation.com is the website. Dr. Asghari, thanks for the time today. Thank you very much for having me, Rick. That is Dr. Ali Asghari, a professor of disaster and emergency management at York University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's an awesome community event that's happening here in Hamilton this weekend. And here to talk about it is, well, he's one of the amazing people in our community. Reverend Don McVicker is the founder of the Eva Rothwell Center and co-founder with his wife, Carol, of the Inner City Outreach Ministry. And Reverend McVicker joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Don, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Just delighted to be here this morning. Absolutely. Uh, My sentiments as well. And I'm glad to talk about this really interesting and important topic, and that is cleaning up our neighborhoods. So what's happening this weekend? Well, something really exciting happened uh, a few days ago. Uh, There was 10 dumpsters that were placed into the community by York One. And what happened before that, the moms approached um, Carol, my wife, back in May, and she said, they said, we've got a situation. Uh, We don't know how to handle it. And what it was is that it was discovered that a few of the homes in the neighborhood um, had rats in their neighborhood, in their, in their actual house. And so what happened is that uh, we contacted Jim Miner of Action Pest Control. I said, could you check this out just to see what was happening? So Jim went in and he checked out the homes, but also he checked the neighborhood and a few other homes. He said, Don, uh, it's really infested here. He said, I've checked the alleyways and there's rats burrowing in. It's a uh, Norway rat. That came from the old plant that was demolished about 2014, 
Uh, there was a 20-acre plant, a little Studebaker plant, and all those rats migrated into the community, and they replicate so very quickly that the whole neighborhood was infested. So we got nine city blocks, and we got a, a, a 15... Uh, uh, sorry, we got nine city blocks, and we got 50 volunteers coming in, and Councillor Nan and Action Pest Control and Inner City Outreach and Eve Rockwell always sponsored this opportunity for people to... Um, for Jim Miner to bait the alleyways and then go into the homes. And now we're having the cleanup day where anybody uh, in that, there's 300 homes, anybody has any uh, items they want to put in dumpsters, they're going to take uh, the volunteers and they're going to take the garbage bags on the porch or the front lawn and put it in the dumpster to really clean up the area. So it's been a real community initiative by uh, the members of the community. The members of the community are really excited because uh, we're out there uh, the past few days when the dumpsters were placed, and half the dumpsters are filled already. Wow. And and York One is going to replace them, and then the, the community volunteers coming to, to get any items. That There's some seniors in the neighborhood, and we want to help them out and move any items of the trash that is um, in the yard or on their porch and just move it away. So it's been really good, and it's really uplifting for the community because there's getting relief from as many rats. And Jim Miner went into um, one of the... Uh, Graduates in the area, and he found 50 rats alive wow. in one area. So it was really significant. And then he sent me some pictures, and I, they were so graphic, I couldn't even send anybody the pictures. That these rodents are really causing a lot of damage. But the good thing is, is that um, uh, the people are really excited that finally they're able to do something about it. And then the cleanup day is just wonderful. Absolutely. And it runs from uh, 9 tomorrow morning to 2 in the afternoon. What part of the city are we focused on here? So we're looking at Wentworth to Emerald, uh, from Mars Avenue to Burton. So there's nine city blocks, 300 homes. And that's the area that when the demolition of the company uh, happened, the old industry, uh, that's when the rat moved into the neighborhood. And people have been trying their hardest, but um, just can't get a hold of it. Now, Jim Miner of Action Pest Control, he went in, assessed the situation. He said, look, he took me through the alleyways and he said, look, where all the whole, the rats were growing in underneath the different garages. And he said, these are all their homes. He said, I'm going to bait all of these. So it was really effective. He went in the alleyways. Now he's going into the homes. Hmm. And if anybody has anything that they want to dispose of, and that we're, that's what we're coming in on Saturday for. We have another minute with uh, Reverend Don McVicker. He's the founder of the Eva Rothwell Center and co-founder of the Inner City Outreach Ministry. And they're going to be going door to door to collect uh, a lot of junk and a lot of stuff that people no longer need in uh, North End of Hamilton. What, what uh, is there still a call for volunteers? Do you need more people to come out to help? Yeah, we've got uh, Carago coming out, Hamilton Police, uh, Team Orange, Marceline Defasco, Mohawk College. Uh, members of the Eva Rothwell, the Inner City Outreach Ministry, and Empower U, the, ten, the, the hockey team that they, they do training with, they're coming out. And we'd love to have anybody that wants to come out for 9 o'clock, you register, you sign up, and then you get a T-shirt, and you walk the neighborhood. And just, it's a meet and greet, really. It's just, hi, how are you doing? Uh, do you have anything that we can put in the dumpster for you? And pretty much uh, the, the folks just want to engage themselves in the community. So everyone is welcome. It's an amazing thing. Cleaning up our community is always an important thing. And Reverend McVicker, we uh, thank you for sharing the news today and good luck tomorrow. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. That is right.
Have a great day. That is Reverend Don McVicker. He's the founder of the Eva Rothwell Center, co-founder of the Inner City Outreach Ministry, one of the amazing people in our community. Now, there are some restrictions on what residents can throw away. They're not accepting any yard waste or concrete or tires, no paint cans, batteries or food waste. And um, this is tremendous, though. This is cleaning up a neighborhood. The rats are being taken care of by Action Pest Control. There's dozens of volunteers that are going to help out. This is this is community building. This is what uh, being a, uh, a resident of this community is all about, looking out for one another. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The best game you can name is the good old hockey game. Well, it is a great game. On the ice for sure, although there are, with with any major sporting organization, whether it's a team or a league, there are some, well, there's some things that we have to iron out. And, and, and this is one of them. I'm not sure the NHL is going about it the right way. Calling it a distraction, National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman has recommended to the Board of Governors that teams no longer wear themed jerseys for warm-ups, including pride jerseys, uh, military nights, hockey fights, cancer. These are going to be taken off the table. Morgan Riley touched on this in an interview with TSN yesterday. We're going to support those communities that need it, you know, whether we wear jerseys or not. Um, That's always been our take on things. You know, it's not a... A competition for you know who can wear the best warm-up jersey or best apparel um you know it's deeper than that and i mean for me personally um with the pride community being one of those things to me you know i'm i'm, I'm always going to offer offer support to that group and um i mean whether we wear jerseys or not that's not what's important so no matter what the leafs defenseman is fully on board with supporting pride events and well all the other events that the maple leafs and other teams are focused on david palumbo is the chair of the you can play project and joins us now on good morning hamilton david good morning welcome to the show good morning your reaction to what the national hockey league is now doing in relation to pride jerseys well, it's certainly disappointing. It's concerning. Um, you know, for the better part of over a decade, really, we've been working on this mission of inclusion and making sure that people find a safe space within the sport that they love. Uh, and we've seen a lot of progress. However, decisions like the one yesterday, it is concerning. It is disappointing uh, to see that uh, as you as you played with Morgan Riley, you know, during this past season, we had probably the better part of over 95% of the players proudly wear those jerseys in the warm-up to support the community, to make a statement of their values. And that's important visibility. Um, that being said, you know, Pride Nights aren't going anywhere and we're not going anywhere. And we're certainly going to be working with teams and players like Morgan and others to make sure that that voice continues to be amplified. Commissioner Bettman says, quote, it's become a distraction and taking away from the fact that all of our clubs host nights in honor of various groups or causes, and we'd rather they continue to get the appropriate attention they deserve. Uh, It's an interesting comment. I know where he's coming from, but I'm not sure if the attention is going to be as big as if you see your favorite hockey player wearing a pride jersey or a or a military night jersey. Uh, that's right. I think, you know, what we're talking about here in the pregame warmup is a 16 minute opportunity for the players to display those jerseys. And it may seem like a short amount of time, but uh, Rick, I think anyone who has been to a game, you see the flood of children going to the glass during the warmups. They want to catch a puck. 
They're looking at their stars playing. Uh, they're snapping photos up close. They're holding their signs. Seeing those players wear those pride jerseys has an impact. The visibility can't just be bought that way. So that will have an effect, I think, overall on people being able to see those teams and players displaying their support. I'm thankful still that these nights aren't going away and things like Hockey Fights Cancer, which has been around since 1998, will still have the opportunity to sell jerseys. Uh, Pride jerseys will be signed and auctioned off. Um, All those things will still be around. So if it's anything, uh, this just makes sure that we have to double down with these teams uh, that have to come up with now more ways of making sure that that statement of support is seen by as many people as possible. David Palumbo is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. David is the chair of the You Can Play Project. And, you know, as disheartening as this decision and announcement is, it also comes during Pride Month, which seems to be tone deaf from the NHL. It's uh, it's a little bit of a head scratcher, I'll be frank. Um, you know, we're going into... Pride weekend in three of the one of the bigger markets in the NHL uh, overall. And um, I, I appreciate that it was a reporter asking a question. And obviously, you don't want to lie. And you could say, but I think timing maybe could have been better managed in terms of on the fly there. And not that you wanted to hide anything, but I think that would have also given an opportunity for people to sort of get together and actually talk about what was going to be that decision and how we could, you know, in a way address rather than just simply repeating that it was a distraction. We've got about 90 seconds to talk about what is going to happen. And you mentioned it earlier, Pride Nights will continue. Will they be bigger to maybe grab a little more of that attention pie? I, I certainly hope so. And I think that's the, going to be the case. Um, it's important to remember also, some teams never did the pride jerseys for their pride nights. Uh, the Leafs in particular, uh, with Morgan speaking, you know, they've shown up at pride parades. They've done pride 365 activations throughout the year. And we've worked with them for years and other teams. Um, not every team uh, did the pride jersey over the last few years. So um, it's, it's, It's certainly a loss, but it does give us opportunity to work with these teams. And I think one of the examples, also the Chicago Blackhawks, who had great programming throughout the entire weekend. And there was a little bit um, of the the media play there where the jerseys were, were taken off the table for that particular game. So now I think it just puts the playing field as to everybody's got sort of their same playbook that we've handed to every team in terms of how to really make an impactful statement during pride activations. And it's important for every organization to really indicate that pride is 365 and jerseys are great, but it's not the be all and end all. That's a good point. David, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. David Palumbo, chair of the You Can Play Project. You Can Play works to ensure the safety and inclusion for all who participate in sports, including LGBTQ athletes, coaches, and fans as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tiger Cats and Alouettes tonight at Tim Hortons Field. Rolls to his right, throws to the corner of the end zone. It. it is cut. 
It's a touchdown, Tyler Turnowski. Hopefully we hear a lot more of that on the Ticats Audio Network and 900 CHML as our pregame show begins at 6.30 tonight. Kickoff is at 7.30, a half hour after the game ends. Join us here on CHML for the fifth quarter, brought to you by Eastgate Ford, as we talk about what happened between the lines and around the Canadian Football League. And who would have thought that a game in week three with Hamilton 0-2 and then going on the bye week and Montreal 1-0 and coming off their bye week. This is, I guess, as close to a must-win game as you can get in week three, if that's such a thing. Uh, Here's a guy who has played in some enormous games for the Black and Golds, Grey Cups, playoff games, regular season throwdowns. Brandon Banks, who is the Hamilton Tiger Cats alumnus of distinction tonight, joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Speedy B, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you guys for having me. Hey, what does it mean to be the alumnus of distinction tonight? Uh, it means it means a lot. Uh, it just shows the uh, it, it shows that the the team and the city uh, just showing their appreciation for what I did. So I'm just happy to be back uh, to show the uh, the love back, and well, I'm just happy to be here. A lot of people have been asking me: Is Speedy actually retired? And if he's not, is there a comeback possible? Can you can you talk to that? Uh, I'm not. I'm not retired. Uh, I'm open. I'm open to come back, but you know, hey, you know, everything that's not in my control. Um, obviously, I'm satisfied in my career. Um, I'm okay to retire right now, but obviously, I want to play a little bit more. So we'll see what happens. Everything happens for a reason, so we'll see. Would you be okay to come back with any team in the CFL, or are you looking at a couple of teams that you'd be a good fit on? Uh, to be honest, it, it had to be the right situation, but obviously, everyone knows you know where I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> have you had Have you had any discussions with any teams? Uh, a couple. Interesting. All right. Well, it was a great fit for you last year. You go to Toronto, and I know a lot of Ticats fans were thinking, oh, we don't want to see Speedy in, in double blue. But, hey, it worked out for you. You won a Grey Cup championship. You recently got your ring. What was it like getting the Grey Cup ring? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was great, to be honest. I haven't personally got it in my hand yet, but I, I've, I've, it's on the way. Um, I've seen it. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to see it, to physically touch it. I'm excited about it. Obviously, um, that's the only reason why I went to uh, Toronto last year uh, is to fight for another opportunity to win a championship, and it happened for me. So, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with my career, and it was it was a pretty good feeling to win it. Man, you had a you had a phenomenal career. Whether it was the NFL, especially here in the CFL, you've made a huge impact with a lot of fans. What are mm-hmm. some of your highlights when you look back at all the the big touchdowns, the massive returns, mm-hmm. the huge receptions? What sticks uh-huh. out to you? Uh, like you, like you started off with, with the fans. I mean, I gained so many great relationships with some of the fans out here that I still keep in touch with to this day. Um, obviously, uh, if I go back in time to remember I, the, the opening of the, uh, the new Tim Horton Stadium was a great, great time. Um, I can remember right off the bat, and probably, probably one of the East final games. Um, probably I think 2015 uh, when I had a couple of big returns. It was pretty good atmosphere that that really stick out in my head that I remember right now. That was just so fun, and I and I and I never forget. How much of this year's team have you been able to watch? Oh, uh, you know me. I'm, I'm I'm tuned all the way in. I'm watching every game. I wouldn't say every snap, but I'm definitely tuned in to everything that's going on. Uh, you know, they got a good team. Obviously, you know, anytime you got Coach O leading you, uh, I, I always believe. Um, obviously, you know, situations have happened with, you know, Bo getting hurt and things like that. Um, but I think, you know, it's a new team. and got new guys. And I think the farther along they get in the season, I think they'll win more ball games. Uh, I'll end with uh, the last question about your potential future. What what percentage would you give it in, in making a return this season? 
Oh man, it's 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 pretty much up in the air, fifty fifty. Uh, obviously, like I said earlier, I, I wouldn't mind playing again, but at, at the same time, I'm I'm okay with my career um, retiring. But the reason why I'm waiting so long, I just wanted to be make sure I'm a hundred percent with my career. I mean, with my decision of retiring. So right now, I'm just leaving the door still open for a good opportunity to come. Man, you're getting people excited, Speedy. <laughs> don't get too excited because that's out of my control. So I don't want nobody to say anything. I mean, you got, you got to try to convince Coach O and Bob Young. That's the people we need to talk to. All right. <laughs> we'll, we'll put in a good word, I'm sure. And I know Ticats fans would love to see you in black and gold once again. If it happens, amazing. If not, you had an incredible career, that's for sure. Uh, Brandon, thanks, thanks for the time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Brandon Banks, Speedy B, former Ticats, former Argonaut, Grey Cup champion. At the end of the day, uh, he was a, a, a pretty big part of what happened last year in Toronto and a massive part of this uh, Ticats generation of players and, and uh, all that they've done on the field. Nice to see him back as the alumnus of distinction tonight at Tim Hortons Field. Our coverage of the game tonight begins at 6.30 with the pregame show. Kickoff is at 7.30. The fifth quarter brought to you by Eastgate Ford follows the game. You're you're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Are you in the market to get a new vehicle or, or do you have plans to sell your car or your SUV or your van or your truck? You'll want to pay attention to this because whether or not you are trading in your car or selling it privately, a number of things can affect its value, as you know, such as the year, the make, the model, condition, and the number of kilometers, of course. And yes, believe it or not, even the color impacts the price tag. This car is crap. I will buy it for next to nothing. How next to? Well, here are your options. You can sell it for parts, drive it off a cliff, you can donate it to a person that you'd like to see die in a car crash, or you can sell it to me and I'll use it as I would a wagon on my farm. It'll be towed by a donkey. I have to pick one of those? Yes. Do it. Shake my hand. You will sell me this car. Shake my hand. Yeah. All right. Gotta love the office. All right, so there's a report from IC Cars. It's conducted this study that shows which color gets the most and least resale value out of a vehicle. So it analyzed data from 1.3 million used cars over the last three years and found that bright colors have the best resale value. Owners of darker colored vehicles don't seem to cash in as big. So if you have a vehicle that is purple, silver, and black, you're at the bottom of the list. And I'm at the bottom of the list with you. Gold-colored cars are at the very bottom, dropping 25.9% in value in just three years. Again, on the resale market. On the other end of the best resale value spectrum are yellow, beige, orange, and green vehicles. Say what? Yeah, yellow cars are number one losing just 13.5% of their value after three years. Now, when you look at data that's broken down by vehicle segment, things get interesting. For pickup trucks, you pickup truck owners out there, if you're looking at the resale market, beige topped the chart, losing only 7.9% of their value over three years. Who has a beige truck? Silver pickups were the worst losing 16.5% of their value. When it comes to SUVs, I know there's a ton of SUVs on the road these days. Yellow, and I've never seen a yellow SUV, yellow was number one with just 9.1% in value lost in just three years. Gold was the worst with a 27% loss. There's not that much difference between gold and yellow. Isn't it like the same thing? Yellow is also number one for coupes. 
losing just 5.6% of their value. If you have a white coupe, well, you're going to lose on average 13.8% in value over three years. And again, this is on the resale market. Same holds true for convertibles. Yellow is number one with a 15% drop. Silver convertibles lose 30.1%. So if you're looking to sell your brown sedan, well, you'll be happy to learn it's the best color for resale value, believe it or not. Brown, yes, dropping 16.5% of its value over three years because the study says brown is a conservative, non-flashy color that blends in and doesn't make any waves, which apparently makes it popular with buyers in this category. The worst color you can get for a sedan is purple, which loses 24.6% of its value in three years. And for you minivan owners out there, all you soccer moms, you hockey dads, green is the best with 19.8% drop in value in three years. Silver and black minivans, seeing a lot of those, they take the biggest hit of any vehicle with a massive 36% drop in value. There you have it. Color does play a big part in vehicle resales. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.